There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. And as you may have guessed, I'm Mick Clifford. Now, housing is everywhere, but not enough of it. By that, I mean, of course, that in the political realm, housing is now the primary domestic issue. We don't have enough homes built and we don't have enough affordable homes to buy. We have a generation locked out and increasingly, we seem to have an older generation of parents willing their adult offsprings to get out, but they can't because there's nowhere affordable to rent, not to mind, buy. There's been a lot of breast beating and policy making around this issue, but so far, unfortunately, things appear to be, if anything, getting worse. But what are the wider implications for this failure to provide homes for the population at large? What impact does housing have on all the different elements that go into making up a society? A new book edited by Dr. Lurkin Sir of the Technological University in Dublin looks at the issue with the widest possible lens. Many of you will know Larkin from his appearances on the various media as his expertise in this area is much sought after. The book is entitled Housing in Ireland, Beyond the Markets and Larkin joins me now. Larkin, very welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Mick. Yeah, I haven't done a podcast in ages. This is great. That's <laughs> Tell me this, Larkin. Why this book? Why now? Yeah, so the book is called uh, Make Housing in Ireland beyond the markets and the beyond the markets bit is the most important part the housing debate is broad but increasingly it's been dominated by increasingly over the last 10 years by the economics the finance uh, and the finance of development and of housing and there's much more to housing than that and what i found listening to the media and indeed myself when i'm being you know on the media being asked about this a lot of it comes back to money and a lot of it comes back to the economics of providing housing. And of course, there's a whole lot more to housing than that. So I, I was actually uh, one Sunday dinner here and after the, the, the dinner, I kind of sat down and took out a piece of paper and scribbled the, the genesis for this book because I started to look at what are all the things that, if I put it bluntly, the economists don't know. And the economists are full of confidence about, you know, proclaiming on all sorts of, of issues. And, uh, you know, quite often they have a very relevant input to make uh, about the economics of certain aspects like pensions and you know, you know the economy and inflation and all that kind of stuff. But I, I've increasingly found that they're, they don't really understand what's going on in housing or they don't really understand the breadth of housing, how, how, how many facets, how many aspects of life that housing touches upon. So I wrote these down on a, on a A4 page. So we end up with things like, you know, housing and regulation, housing and health. I haven't heard much commentary over the years about housing and health. Actually, it's a big area that we're missing in our, that relationship between housing and health, um, housing and minorities, something we don't really talk about outside direct provision. It never really gets a mention. Sustainability, human rights, the big one uh, that we never have ever talked about, like we, we'll talk about various different things and touch on them. But the big one we've never spoken about is gender. And of course, housing and gender, just, I know listeners are already scratching their heads going, how are the two things related here? But actually in other countries, and particularly in Austria, um, housing and gender are 
intimately in, intertwined and have been, you know, a really important um, symbiotic relationship uh, over the years. We looked at home ownership. Now, home ownership is something that you'll hear discussed a lot. Um, looked at the relationship with the state, rural Ireland. Uh, uh, it's also something that, you know, when we think of rural Ireland housing, just think of one-off white bungalows and Jack Fitzsimons bungalow bliss and Frank MacDonald having a go at them and all that kind of stuff over the years. But actually, in rural Ireland, the history of housing in rural Ireland and where it's going uh, is fascinating. And then we looked at kind of housing and agency and vacancy and a whole load of things. Now, this is an edited book, Mick, so I am merely the manager of the football team and I write some... Comp- I don't know why I'm holding it up because no one can see it. But <laughs> the I'm merely the manager of the football team. So I got together um, 17 or 18 really good people, experts... Uh, in their areas to kind of contribute to the book and I wrote you know, chapter on ownership in the introduction but two of the interesting really interesting people that I got are, um, were two ladies from Austria from Vienna and Eva Kale in particular is a planner there who set up you know the gender planning urban planning development gender department in the city council way back in I think 1991 so they're at it 30 years and you know it's not even a topic that raises its head here in Ireland so that's the genesis of the book Talk to us about gender and its impact on housing. So what I'd say to you is, like, the built environment, right, is mostly, right, not always, but mostly designed by men for men. And not only that, it's designed for able-bodied middle-aged men. That's effectively what it is. So we're designing housing for people who have no limiting abilities, uh, mostly men, and it is relevant uh, that it's mostly men. And, and that's and they're the people designing the built environment for themselves. So there's certain assumptions built into that. That, for example, they don't need public transport, that they're able to walk a long distance to go to a shop or to go to something, or that they're all car owners. So it's also middle class and middle aged men that we kind of designed for. And they, they copped onto this a long time ago in Vienna and said, look, there's something wrong here that, that this is the way it is. Uh, so they adopted this kind of process called gender mainstreaming, which is where you, you put gender as part of the normal everyday processes, things that you would look at in when you're developing housing, the same way as you would in Ireland with disability, with planning permission, with whatever, right? So fire access, and they put gender up there with fire access and disability and planning permission, okay? So that's what we would have to do to kind of, to get there. So now, so they look at it in kind of three ways. So the principles of how you bring gender into the kind of the, the housing realm. So they look, they, they, they have to look at you have to look at housing. One of the principles they'll have to look at the compatibility of, we say, family duties and employment duties with housing. So quite often, family duties, and remember, women do most of the heavy lifting in terms of caring uh, in the household. Family duties are not compatible with housing developments, quite often where they are. Recently, I was looking at a housing development going up on the outskirts of Galway, up at Boring, basically, hundreds of houses up at Boring, no, no public footpath, nothing. And, you know, that means that that any sort of development like that, the women, typically the women in, in your gender normative household, will take the kids to the creche, the mother-in-law's the school, back home, then go to work, come home, pick them up for the mother-in-law, the creche and the school and do do all that kind of transport, all that kind of heavy lifting in terms of like, you know, multi-trips. If there's no public transport available or even a footpath to go to walk the kids to the school, that's a real burden on the female in the you know, in the relationship or in the, in the in the household. Again, creating safe and secure housing is really important, uh, particularly for women. Men, like, you know, we designed the built environment without the notion of fear uh, for men because men are typically less afraid or more secure in themselves uh, in the housing environment than, than females. And then the whole thing about equitable participation and having women involved in, in, in deciding on housing. So, there's a thing called the Vienna Housing Fund, which would be like Dublin City Council in Ireland, right? It's, it's, they provide social housing in Vienna. And if you want funding from the state to develop housing, so the state will divide up lots, sell them off or, or you know, put them out to tender. And if you're a housing developer and you want to bid on them, you bid on them. But you're, 
your submission, your design gets judged on by a panel of experts, including gender experts. So they will look at your how you're designing your neighborhood. Um, it's a capacity to cycle and walk places. Um, they'd like to keep the ground floor open for businesses. Now, not Paddy Power Spar and a Chinese takeaway, but local businesses where you have, you know, ordinary people who want to open up their own kind of one-man band shops and also things like each apartment must have good visibility of the common areas of players. So that means apartment development is no more than six stories. So that's about the height that you can shout at your kids down at the playground. And I'm not making that up. That's exactly what it's about. The kids can hear you calling them, saying, come up for your dinner or do whatever. Uh, and above that, they can't hear you, so it's no point. And also then you know, within the building itself, so if you want state funding, you have to comply, you have to be, you have to align yourself with the principles of gender mainstreaming in development. Now, in the private sector, you don't, and it's a bit of a challenge getting them to kind of come on board with this. But any state funding there from the Vienna Housing Fund has these kind of criteria based applications around gender. Uh, and that's that's how they do it out there. And so I suppose, as you said, the private sector is one thing, Larkin, but um, if that was to apply would we effectively gender-proof public housing in terms of its uh, suitability? Absolutely. And that that would be at any sort of housing, not just kind of public housing developed by the council. I mean, that it should be kind of a norm anyway, really, you know, that that happens. We shouldn't need any anybody to crack the whip there. But if you were to get any sort of state funding uh, for your housing development, and, and I would argue including housing subsidies like Help to Buy, that your development would have to be designed in a way that's gender mainstream so that you're you're taking account of the needs of or like when you're when you when you design it's like designing for for the old person in the community when you design for the oldest person in the community you're actually designing for everybody you're putting ramps in you're doing whatever you know and you're that's the way it goes so you can when you start designing with with gender in mind you end up with a different type of development and you end up with a far more equitable development because the burden you're you're kind of lifting off the shoulders of particularly the, the females in the household the burden of doing all these caring duties and these strips like there's no point is it really difficult for for particularly females like you know drop a kiss to crash into to the mother-in-laws there's not even a footpath outside your housing estate and the nearest doctor or school is two miles away you know that we need to get rid of that i'm surprised that there's still local authorities in that are, are granting planning permission for such developments on on, on many levels Right. No, uh, another issue, and I think this is one perhaps that there's an awful lot of debate around and some people, including myself, might suggest it's one of the places where we went wrong. And that is there's a very interesting chapter on housing and the dynamics of land by Mel Reynolds. Mel, of course, is an architect who has a huge interest in housing policy. Couple of things about that, Larkin, that strike me and tell me, am I on the, am I gone totally off reservation with this one? But Anybody who knows anything about housing would be familiar with the Kenny report back in 1973 that suggested in terms of rezoning, one element that has persisted and dogged the whole area of land is that uh, the commission, chaired by a High Court judge at the time, John Kenny, suggested that rezoned land should be sold for the agriculture price plus 25%. Now, that's hugely relevant in, because price of land is such a major element of the cost of housing. And as we subsequently saw with tribunals over corruption, over turning muck into gold overnight, when you rezone something, it would strike me, though, Larkin, that at that time, it was dismissed, apparently looked at by the cabinet and said, yeah, put it away, and it was put away in a quiet corner. And on one level, that nearly was an admittance that housing is not something that's primarily there in order to put the roof over the head of the population at large, but as a financial vehicle, particularly for those who are best placed to take advantage of it. and that. 
it was a trick missed. Maybe that's probably too simplistic a way of putting it, but it certainly pointed the way towards the financialization of housing that seems to be a major issue in the crisis we're at in the moment. And just one line from Mel's piece that I think perhaps goes towards that. He points out that in terms of land being an asset, due to wear and tear, most capital assets tend to depreciate over time, but land tends to appreciate. This means that people are often keen to convert other forms of wealth into land. As such, land is widely perceived as an asset to act as security or collateral for extending credit and finance as well as a basis for generational capital. There's something in that, isn't there? Yeah. Well, the reason land is an appreciating asset and not a depreciating one is that if you compare it to the probably most people have a car sitting on the driveway outside when they listen to this, if you compare it to your car that you bought two years ago is now worth like 10 or 15 grand less than you paid for it. Um, land, the difference between land and, and the Toyota Corolla or whatever on your in your driveway is that land is fixed, it's finite, and we're not really making any more of it unless we're in, in the Netherlands and in, in, in Holland or somewhere where we don't make more land. And as we use more and more uh, land, there's obviously less of it there to be used for housing. So its value tends to go up. And that, that's a real problem. The Kenny report was a missed opportunity in that, you know, it was the report, as you rightly say, was shelved. And it would have meant that states could the state could have been much more proactive in going out there and buying land affordably, building on it and then selling the housing or renting it out much more affordably. We let that one slip because there is... Where there is a real deference in Ireland and in Irish politics towards property rights and towards the rights of ownership of property. And funnily enough, it's been front and centre in, in the Republican Party strategies uh, in the main over the years, which is odd because in most countries you find Republicanism, land is something that, that is kind of more to be shared and more to be, you know, the more equitable distribution of land. In Ireland, Republican Republicanism has put land ownership front and centre since the foundation of the state uh, and, and way before it in the mid-19th century. So governments, successful governments, have been increasingly reluctant to touch on, to do anything that might, they suspect, vaguely impinge on people's property rights. Now, there's a certain irony in this, like when we had the Land Commission in the 1930s and, and up until 1992 or whatever, they took land off the Brits, no problem. And there was no constitutional issue of whipping loads of land uh, from the departing British without giving them any compensation or, or minimal compensation and then re- redistributing it uh, around the country. But the idea of the state taking land from people and paying them fairly for it, like the, the, the value of the land plus 25%, uh, was always deemed uh, a no-no. I, I don't think that the Kenny report, you know, the state acquiring land for its existing use value plus 25% would be unconstitutional at all, and so do most of my... Uh, it was shown friends. it wouldn't be, yeah. It subsequently, yeah. an Iraqis committee came to the conclusion it wouldn't have been, they got legal advice on it. Yeah, but I think I think the whole thing about, about land in Ireland is that, A, it's your, for many people, it's their wealth. So one of the reasons we don't have a land price register, for example, right? We have a, a property price register. So if, if you knew where I lived, um, you could look up and you knew what year I bought the house and you could look up and see how much I paid for this house that I'm sitting in at the moment. Uh, we don't have the same for land. So if I had land in Tipperary and sold it, you wouldn't be able to find out how much I paid for that land because our land is our, is our wealth. And if you when you look at the kind of in Mel's chapter, he delves into the cost of building apartments. And if you tweak one thing, what happens? And it's all about the land. If you tweak, reduce VAT, reduce the floor sizes, it actually goes into inflating the price of land. It doesn't go into reducing uh, sales prices. 
So land is front and centre. And if you look at the price of an apartment, you've got three components. The construction costs, which we know, land and profit. And we don't know the two of them. And there's a real reluctance out there to have a land price register because if we knew the construction costs and we knew the price that somebody paid for the land, we'd be able to work out the profit. And of course, there'd be a series of the whole lot of vested interests who wouldn't really want people to know exactly how much they're making from building houses and building apartments. But I know from my own expertise that it's a lot more than people think. Yeah, but again, that concept of rezoning, like what you're effectively doing is the purpose of rezoning is for housing. Housing is there literally to house people. But you're basically saying to the private landowner that we're going to make you fabulously wealthy overnight for the public good. And that has persisted. Yeah, absolutely. And and what you're, what you're giving them is windfall gains. If you happen to be lucky enough to own land in an area where the council suddenly zone, rezone agricultural to residential overnight, you go from 10,000 an acre to maybe a million euro an acre. And of course, this is what we had a lot of the tribunals over back in the uh, in the 90s and early 2000s was around this corrupt rezoning of land. And we know that there a whole lot of it went on and they've been caught out. Now, successive governments have tried to impose what's called a windfall tax. So you pay a tax based on the value of the uplift in that land after rezoning. Mm. And they say, oh, this is Kenny. This is what Kenny would have wanted. This is what Kenny, you know, suggested that we do. Actually, Judge John Kenny in his Kenny report suggested, absolutely, this is the worst thing that you can do because any sort of a windfall tax invariably gets passed on to the purchaser. At the end of the chain is the person who always picks up the price. So Mel, in his chapter, what he's done is taken the example of one apartment. And he's, you know, he's tweaked it in various ways to show you the impact of, of, say, increasing the sales price on the value of the land. So we can see that if you increase the sales price, for example, by 10%, so an apartment goes from, say, 370000 to 410000 whatever, the site value, so in other words, the land underneath that apartment goes up by 46%. So that means it's obviously not that land because the apartment is built on, but all the surrounding land that, that the builder probably owns as well will go up by 46%. So what Mel is trying to show you in, in, in that chapter in the book is that there's a huge kind of a, a, almost cogs, a small cog turning a big cog. When you tweak the sales price, the actual value of the remaining land on the site goes up hugely. And the same happens with the sales when the sales price falls. If your sales price falls by 10%, the value of your site will fall by 30%. And that when you know that, it explains hugely why how important it is for builders to maintain high house prices so what you see going on in government housing policy for the last like years is a total reluctance to reduce the sales price of housing but a lot of help to help people afford the sales price so they're helping people afford what's on offer rather than making what's on offer more affordable in order to maintain those high those high site prices because because if you reduce the the, the sales price by 10% the site value goes down by 30% if you own 10,000 sites that's a huge impact on your bottom line in, in your company valuation. Yeah, it's fairly depressing in that sense, all right. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, Larkin, you have a chapter in this book on home ownership and... That, of course, is another issue that's been up for grabs in recent years in terms of some people suggesting 
mainly people <laughs> who own their own homes, that we need to get used to a renting society and um, a more European model in that respect. But there are problems in that regard as well, particularly for various culture aspects in this country, aren't there? Yeah, actually, your point there at the start about, the, the, about people promoting renting who own their own homes, there's an awful lot of hypocrisy goes on in commentary around housing. You find people who own their own homes are, are very much advocates for people to, other people to rent. Uh, people who live in low-rise yeah. want people to live in high-rise, want everybody else to live in high-rise, and people who live in low-density tend to want everybody else to live in high-density. So the, the idea of renting forever... It can work in some countries and it generally does work very well in places in some of the Germanic countries in Switzerland. It's very difficult to make it work in Ireland. Now, there has been a huge push towards, I won't say forcing people to rent, but making renting pretty much the only option in town. Uh, and we can see this by the changing changing the way we've 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 tweaked our planning policy to favour, for example, built-to-rent developments and high-density built-to-rent developments. And none of those are going to come on the market for sale. And that leaves people with fewer and fewer options of what they're going to do. Um, but there's a couple of reasons why we can't really rent long-term in Ireland. Um, the first one is around um, affordability. So if you are 65 and you're retired and you've been in the public sector or a civil servant all your life, your salary is effectively going to have. The problem is that your, your rent isn't going to have. So you'll end up, you'll still end up with an eighteen hundred or two thousand euro a month rent bill, but your salary will have gone down by half, and you might be able to afford that rent. So that means the state is going to have to step in and subsidise you. And the other way that we can't really rent forever in Ireland is because our residential tenancy legislation means that, you know, if the landlord wants the property back because their relative is coming to live in it or wants to live in it, they can ask you to leave. They can legally evict you, or if they want to do it up or whatever. They can legally ask you to leave. Now, you don't get that in countries that have a culture of renting. When you move in and the owner wants to sell the property, they have to sell it with you in situ as a tenant, much like you would in a commercial market. Like, you know, if McDonald's and Grafton Street, that building was sold, wouldn't make any difference to McDonald's at all. They would still have the same lease as they currently have. They would just have a new owner and the rent would go to somebody else. That's it. So there are lots of reasons that we can't really tackle uh, long-term renting unless we tackle things like, you know, people landlords' expectations, for example, that they can always turf out a tenant if they want to sell the property. Now, it was interesting a couple of weeks ago, listening to Pascal, Pascal Donoghue, Minister for Finance, talk about the pensions and the pensions time bomb that's coming down the line and all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, then, he's also saying we need more investment funds, institutional investment funds in the country. Now, if you have a pension time bomb, what he never said at all was that how you're going to marry the time bomb or how much worse the time bomb is going to be if you have a whole generation of people who are renting. In the old days, in the 70s and 80s, early 80s, you could get, when you bought a house, you could get half the price of that house back in various mortgage interest relief, state subsidies, grants and all that kind of stuff. So we kind of subsidise people on the way in, on the, on the start of their housing journey at the early days. And the idea then is that your mortgage is paid off at 65 and you can live on a modest state pension. You don't need subsidy when you retire because you got your pension of 232 euro, whatever it is at the moment, and you should be, in theory, be able to live on that. If you have a whole slew of people, generation, thousands of people renting, when they retire, what's going to happen now is, a, the, the state is going to have to subsidise their rental contributions, maybe up to €1,000 a month or maybe more, maybe maybe even depending on where they are. But now that money, instead of staying in the country, is going to go to, you know, the Canadian Teachers Pension Fund or the New York Firefighters Pension Fund or whatever. It's going to go overseas. So we don't even see the value of it in Ireland. So you'd have Irish taxpayers paying the pensions of, you know, meat factory workers in Milwaukee uh, rather than seeing the money stay more economically productive in the country. So the renting for everything, this is why home ownership are front and centre. It's not really, I don't think it's a hangover from famine times. And I know the Republicans put it kind of way up there in, in their in their kind of political principles and ethos. But 
really like we rented up, up until the 1940s and 50s the majority of people rented in Ireland uh, well you know a large portion 40-50% of people rented in, in Ireland and now I think it's much more pragmatic reality people know you can't rent forever uh, so this push towards renting and renting and renting and thousands more you know apartments coming on the stream solely for rental uh, people aren't stupid they're, they're, they're you know they need they know they need to own a home for lots of reasons you know one is security and personal security but also it's our wealth. The vast majority of our, of our personal wealth is tied up in the houses we own. And that's what you pass on to your kids when you die and all that kind of stuff. So Irish people are very pragmatic about home ownership and much more than just being, you know, a hangover from the famine. It's, it's just economic reality that you really kind of in the Irish society of today, you need to own. Yeah. And I see some people would say like the, the, the kind of this built to rent um, thing that's going on, that uh, traditionally you the scenario whereby younger people you know start working or finish college or whatever then they rent for a few years with the hope of of saving up to to buy a house perhaps have a family or however people want to want to progress through life but the problem now is in that scenario is basically the cost of renting is such that this notion that it's a stepping stone towards buying a house is reversed to the point that there's an awful lot of people, in fact, I'd say majority of people in, the likes in their 20s and even into their 30s are paying more in rent than many of us who are older and were fortunate enough to buy homes are paying in mortgages at this stage. And that's getting past that is uh, it's going to be very difficult to see how it can be done. It is indeed, and, and there's apartments going up behind me where I live at the moment, and the one bed is going to be 1800 a month, and that's considerably, well not considerably, but it's a bit more than my mortgage in the house that I'm kind of going to be paying off till I'm 70. But yeah, it is, and it's untenable, like how you're expected to save. Of course, everything is based on being in a couple. I mean, that's that's the bottom line now, Mick. And if you look at, if you look at any of the assessments, the financial viability assessments of affordability, you know, it's always a guard and a nurse. It's always two people, and there's no account taken of the increasing number of people who stay single during their lives. And the increasing number of people who are, who are in, in relationships that don't endure for the, the rest of their lives as well, which is is another uh, cohort. Absolutely. And, and the problem is, like, you wouldn't mind if there was an increased supply of housing coming down the line for these people. But on average, we've been building about 7,500 houses a year that come to the market. So we've been building 14,000, 15,000, 20,000 houses, right? But every year, only 7,500 of those are coming to the market. The rest are all increasingly going to social housing and going for rental. And the target for 2022 from the Department of Housing, again, is another 7,590 houses to come to the market. So you wouldn't mind if the number of houses for sale potentially coming to your estate agent window was going up every year, but it's not, and it's not foreseen to either. So what you find is that the, the largest number of houses being, new houses being bought and built are in places in the commuter belts around the major cities, particularly around Dublin, so Yarnavon to Newbridge and all that kind of area. And that's precisely where the planners don't what they don't want to see because their public transport is so poor that an awful lot of those people are just going to buy a car and start driving in and out of, of where they go to work. So we're kind of, our policy is eating ourselves in in our in our you know in our willingness and our desire to tug the forelock for international money coming in with their bill to rent investments, which for which they don't pay hardly any tax uh, on mm. the income. Um, you know we're driving our own people way out. I don't want to sound like some sort of mini zealot nationalist or right like that. I'm not like that at all. But you know we're we're driving people out to the to the commuter belt in order so that they can do the basic thing, which is to own a home. No, and I suppose in in a broader sense, um, there's another essay in here that's specifically on policy by a Paul Umfreville. And he has one uh, sentence here that leaped out at me, and that's the, um, the social impacts of how 
of housing crisis need to be addressed. And the best place to start is with a national discussion and agreement on the underlying causes of the problem, not just the symptoms. And, you know, you, you, you couldn't really argue with that. But the big problem there is, we all love a national discussion, God knows, but this has been going on so long. Are we not yet at the point where there is broad agreement on the symptoms, on the cause of the issue, and therefore what to move forward and do about it? Is there still dispute over that, Larkin, in your experience? Yeah, well, actually, interesting. So Paul, um, Paul O'Frevel there, who wrote that chapter, he's a, he's, he's a planner in London for 25 years, and he has seen all this, uh, you know, several times over in, a, in, in his career as a town planner. And the national discussion thing, I don't think it is, and it's one of the reasons why I started the book. I think the national discussion has been dominated by the economics and finance of housing. And it goes back to where we started from. Uh, I think the national discussion is a very small N and a small D. It's not really looking at the things that we, we should be looking at, like the sustainability, the transport. Really, Mick, like the house that, that you live in or, or the house that we produce should be the last in a chain of things that we have to look at before the house comes, right? So we look at, you know, is our public transport? Is it sustainable? Um, you know, is it that is it gender mainstream? What a whole other things are good for your health, mental and physical health, all those things. Then we build the housing. Um, and so what, what we've seen is a, is a, the dominance of the finances and economics of it and the viability, not that planners should be involved in determining the viability of, of a, a development for, for a property developer, but we've seen houses just thrown up everywhere um, to hit political targets about output with no consideration of all the other things that go on, the health and the transport and sustainability and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and that's all at the behest of kind of the economics of it, uh, that, you know, how can we make housing cheaper without thinking that that's that's a very short-term way. You might make it cheaper uh, by building thousands of houses, but it's not cheaper. Like, there's no point in having an A1 BER rated house if you've got two two-litre diesel cars sitting outside the driveway because you can't take the bus because they're miles from anywhere. So all these things are intertwined, but but I think what's gone on is that the finance and the money has dominated the discussion around housing. And, and even from the state perspective, you know, that cost of building social housing, rather than the quality of it, we're still like, there's three ways you measure success and policy. And number one is just numbers. Number two is the quality of the development. And number three is the user experience. We're still, we're well stuck on number one here where success is just measured by numbers. So the government increasingly would seem not to care whether they're built to rent or houses for sale once the numbers are going up. And I think they're in lately lies a, a massive error I think you know coming down the line will be all sorts of issues around transport and congestion and sustainability and fines from Europe because we, we all we did was put the economics of housing ahead of everything else Okay and just on that theme Larkin um, you might have noticed recently a number of developers are objecting to I think it's the Dublin City Council plan that's suggesting in terms of big developments they'd want to be 5% of cultural spaces something I think is badly needed when you consider all the uh, cultural spaces that have closed down in recent years. But if one is to take that as an example, and a number of the SES in your book are uh, hitting on things like sustainability, as you said, gender, and on uh, how we should develop in terms of the dynamics of land and all that, those who do the building will say that if you're to include this holistic approach as set out in the book, you're going to slow things down. I can well imagine some of them, and you can as well, they're going to suggest you're going to perhaps slow things down to a stop and we're going to get nothing built. What's your response to that? I, yeah, my response is, uh, you know, like, you know 
it, I've never known a crowd who always wants more, uh, more than the developers. <laughs> they, they're, they're never happy. And, there's all, and the problem is we've kept giving. It's like a spoiled child. If you keep giving to them, they're just going to keep coming back wanting more. And that's like I've seen that for years. We've had all sorts of grant schemes and funding and all that kind of stuff and still no housing. And there are large housing development areas in Dublin that I won't mention live on your podcast, but, you know, that have got an awful lot of taxpayers' monies over these and have developed uh, little to no housing uh, for it. So I, I think, you know, when you normalise things like gender mainstreaming or, or, or sustainable development or actually having footpaths, you know, that lead from the, the town or village or the city to your uh, to your housing estate, uh, these things just get built in. There's like Housing is, is profitable. Uh, we know that building housing is profitable because it wouldn't be done if it wasn't. Um, so I don't I don't really kind of buy into that. I, I I think where we could start is with the state itself. I mean, the problem we have really, and I, I, you know, I hate trying to make this line, but we just rely on everything. You know, whether it's healthcare or or childcare, we just rely on the private sector to do all the things that we used to do ourselves. Uh, and of course, a big part of that was building house. The house I'm sitting in at the moment here, right, nineteen twenty nine built mass concrete house. Will never go anywhere. Believe me, it takes me half an hour to hang a picture on the walls here. Uh, but it was built by the state and there was you know hundreds of them built uh, around where I am I have photographs actually of them being built um, by a builder who who are still still in in existence in the country uh, and you know you can see them setting up their workshops in the front gardens and cutting timber the stairs is all hand cut and all that kind of stuff and we used to do that really well and we used to do it privately and we used to do it for public but I, I think there's been an element a huge component of deference to the private sector since the early 1990s when there was a deliberate you know policy step taken to pull back from the delivery of, of particularly social housing uh, and and you know when you leave a vacuum like that the private sector going to you know, pile in and they can just demand what they want now because there's such a dearth of, of competition. And there's an EU report from 2018 that says one of the huge problems that Ireland has uh, in terms of affordability housing is the lack of competition. And a bit like farming, now I don't know much about farming, I'm a, I'm a city guy, but, you know, you see the small farmers being squeezed out at the expense of, for example, you see the small butchers being squeezed out in abattoirs as well at the expense of the factories. Um, and I think it's the same with the small and medium house builders in Ireland. They've been squeezed out by policy changes that designed to suit a handful of large suppliers of housing uh, rather than all house builders. And I think that's, you know, a, a huge part of the problem on the private sector side. The small and medium builders are well used to providing footpaths and lighting and paying for it. And it was always part and parcel of what they did. Nowadays, it's, it's everything is an extra and the, the hand is always out. Yeah, I think a lot of people would um, would agree with you on that one, Larkin. Um, that's it for today. I think um, we've covered that and... I have to say, it is a fascinating read because, as Larkin said, it gives a holistic view of the whole issue of housing and how it is to be developed in society as opposed to the narrow prism we seem to be viewing it through, mainly to do with economics and finance. Housing in Ireland, Beyond the Markets, is the name of the book. It's published by the Institute of Public Administration. I'd like to thank Larkin Sir for joining us today. Uh, I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, and thank you for listening. Go easy till we meet again. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. 
That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.